Welcome to HRI's Next in Health podcast. I'm Jenny Colapetro, PwC's Vice Chair for Health Industries, working across pharmaceuticals, medtech, payers, and providers. And I'm Igor Belakronitsky, a principal with PwC Strategy End, where I help leading health organizations with their strategies and operating models. Jenny and I are here today with Spencer Hutchins, who's one of our alums, and he's a founder and CEO of Concert Health, which provides behavioral health services to primary care providers and organizations. Welcome, Spencer. Great to be here. Thank you both for having me. Now, Spencer, over the past two years, the COVID pandemic has exposed a lot of fragilities in our healthcare ecosystem. And probably the worst and the biggest of those has been the gaps in our behavioral and mental health services. And we're really excited to have you on the show today because you have started a company in this space. And so perhaps a good place to start is just tell us a little bit about Concert Health. Concert Health is a five-year-old behavioral health medical group. Today, we have about 250 employees, the vast majority of whom are licensed behavioral health providers, psychiatrists, or psychiatric nurse practitioners. And our model is to really help primary care teams integrate behavioral health services into the primary care setting using a model called collaborative care, which has decades of evidence that shows when we manage our depression, anxiety, or other behavioral health conditions alongside of the rest of what's going on in our bodies, we get better access and better outcomes by embedding it into the practice that most patients trust the most, their primary care physician, their OBGYN, or their pediatrician. That's great. Thank you for that background. Spencer, what problems exist in the current care paradigm that Concert Health is trying to solve? Thanks, Jenny. I'd say the most important problem we're solving is access. I think it's something, as Igor mentioned, we're all waking up to. Fortunately, there was some realization, I think, prior to COVID, some movement, both societally and as the U.S. healthcare system of recognizing that we need to treat healthcare and mental health care as one category and have it be combined. And so most importantly, we're trying to get people the access to care that they need. Although another important element is integration. I think there's a lot of examples in which even if you can find a therapist or a psychiatrist, a lot of times our conditions don't exist in isolation. A person's depression is very much feeding and being fed by their diabetes or their heart failure, their obesity. And what research has shown over and over again, and I think what many people intuitively understand, is that if you find a way to have really a unified approach there, you end up having a better outcome across all of those levers. And so that's something that we've been able to do. I think on the business side, the other thing is that these models of integrated behavioral health are now supported by health plans. I think many primary care organizations love the idea of same day or next day access to behavioral health providers documented immediately in your record, a approach that we take called treat to target, meaning constantly reassessing symptom severity, changing the intervention if you're not getting better, and then having psychiatrists there not to take referrals from primary care physicians, but to coach them or make recommendations on medications or diagnoses or orders. That kind of model, there's a lot of enthusiasm for, but maybe not figuring out how to do it all themselves. And so we operate as that easy button for the primary care physicians and say, this sounds great, but if I try to do it myself, I either wouldn't or I'd probably mess it up. And that's where we come in to try to make one plus one equal three. Spencer, you described two major issues, access and integration. And we'll come back to integration in a second, but I want to start with access. Now, we do have a shortage of behavioral and mental health professionals, and it takes a long time to train them. So how is the industry approaching solving this access issue? And how is Concert Health helping to address the access issue that you described? 
a topic of conversation, a lot of people talking about shortage. I think there's some lazy thinking around when we think about the workforce and people are talking about it as a single category. And you really need to think about the individual clinical roles. Undoubtedly, psychiatry has a shortage. There's not enough of them more retiring that are being created. It also takes close to a decade for someone to enter med school and then actually come out as a practicing psychiatrist. Collaborative care itself has a huge leverage point on those psychiatrists, though. Their role in our model is they do a weekly 60 to 90 minute case consultation with each of our behavioral care managers, reviewing those patients that are getting better and providing recommendations to the primary care physician around a different dose or different medication, different diagnosis. And so in that hour or two a week, they can help support the broader team managing 100 patients, 80 to 100 patients, as opposed to just being able to see a couple in one-on-one care. And so really, Concert's effort, it's just simply replicating and scaling this evidence-based model that creates great leverage on those professionals. On the behavioral health side, sort of the panoply of therapists, I think there's a spectrum of those professionals. There are more, and there's something like 20 or 30,000 people a year that are graduated. So I think the most important thing you need to do is just create an exceptional clinical and broader employee value proposition to find those people. An effort that we have at Concert Health is also to really be part of fixing supply constraints as opposed to just complaining about them. So even this year, we've taken close to 30 interns in the second year of their master's in social work, marriage and family therapy, or professional counseling in order to actually be part of training the next part of the workforce. And so that's been a huge part we're hiring. I think it was just earlier today, actually, we did an onboarding with 30 new team members, the vast majority of whom were clinicians. Spencer, you mentioned the collaborative care model that you have. Could you explain a little bit more around how you integrate your services into the end-to-end care model? And how do you create your arrangements with providers and health plans? Yeah, so the care model is really about recognizing some fundamental truths. It was invented by a group of psychiatrists close to 20 years ago. And they say, listen, we need to recognize a couple of realities. One, there's not enough psychiatrists. Two, nobody wants to come see them. And three, even if they do, it was a silly idea for us to manage people's depression or anxiety separate from the rest of their clinical conditions, because as we know so often, they're intermingled. And we need to recognize the reality that primary care is the de facto mental health care system for most people. They're already writing more antidepressant prescriptions than psychiatrists. And if we have any hope of covering the close to half the people we think suffer from those conditions and get no help, it has to happen in primary care. They're the only people with the relationships and the capacity. So the care model is really focused on a few areas. One is getting the primary care physicians to screen their panel. That can often be done by some basic survey tools. We know that about half the people with depression or anxiety don't bring it up, either because they're hiding it consciously or subconsciously, or they just don't even realize it. And so you can ask a set of signs and symptoms, or many of your listeners have probably gotten that on an annual wellness exam or increasingly in a kiosk. So that's great, and they'll reinforce that trend. And then being able to give the primary care physician a new avenue to refer patients they think have a behavioral health condition through a warm handoff. If I'm a patient and I walk into my primary care practice that's partnered with Concert, instead of saying, hey, Spencer, you have depression, here's a drug, and here is a list of therapists, or call back your insurance card and try to find a therapist yourself, they could instead say, hey, Spencer, it looks like you're struggling a lot with sleep or with grief or with your nerves, your energy. I work really closely with a woman named Verna, and I would love to have her reach out to you in the next day or two. Verna helps me care for a lot of my patients going through symptoms just like that. What she does is check in with you in between our visits. First, she just finds out how you're doing, and she tracks your symptoms the same way we would your sugar or your blood pressure or your weight. And then she's got some coping skills she helps teach a lot of patients they find really helpful. 
She keeps me totally in the loop on how things are going. And then we find together when we work with you, we can do a lot better than my quick office visits. So it'd be all right if I had Verna reach out to you. Unsurprisingly, most people say yes to that. It's much more human. If I was someone that recognized depression in myself and recognized that I had the need or the desire to have a therapist, they could say, hey, Verna is my in-house therapist or I work closely with her organization, Concert Health. If that language is something that turns me off, we can stay at the symptom level. Verna helps me care for patients that struggle sleeping or have nerves or energy problems. Because that's where most of all of us live in the world of symptoms and conditions, limitations in life, as opposed to diagnoses. And then we do just that following up on video or phone visits, checking in with the patient really regularly across that month, always re-administering a tool to assess their symptom severity and who's not, as well as what intervention we're using, what psychotherapy tools we're using, and what, if any, medications the PCP has started. And that helps inform the supervision of each of our care managers, each of our burners, as well as that weekly consultation they have with one of our psychiatrists reviewing those more complicated cases or just stubborn cases, maybe someone that has moderate depression, but that isn't getting better after two, three months. And how do we really continue to cycle on what needs to change, a different form of intervention on the psychotherapy side, a different set of goals, or a different medication or diagnosis. And so what does that look like from concert? It's pretty deep integration with their medical records, billing systems, and others. We've learned over five years, 50 health systems and medical groups that we work with, that primary care doctors are too busy to look anywhere else. And so our information really needs to flow directly into their medical record. There needs to be a shared source of truth, a single care plan, a single med list, and that PCPs are too busy to look somewhere else, even if we build a beautiful dashboard. So we do a lot of work making sure that we have read-write access into their medical records, and we have that with every health system and medical group we work with, and we won't work with them otherwise. So then they really experience it at the provider level as a low-tech intervention. They see new clinicians that are able to document directly in their medical record. They understand and have visibility into what we're doing. And then they have specific recommendations routed to them if there's a change in treatment for the patient or whatnot. In terms of the way business partnership works, that can change a bit by market. But fortunately, starting in 2017, collaborative care became a covered benefit for Medicare. Just about every commercial health plan has followed. There's only a couple remaining regional blues that are holdouts. And now Texas is becoming the 20th state who has added it to the Medicaid fee schedule. Probably about three quarters of the people with Medicaid in this country have this built into their fee schedule already. And so basically what we do is partner with those teams, deliver great clinical services together and generate revenue together. And then really that crosses the spectrum of people that are in risk or capitation agreements all the way to things that are more fee-for-service or early stages of value-based care, fee-for-service with some up and downside risk like an accountable care organization. And so really our goal is to support, most importantly, the patients and the provider cross-panel and then work on the back end with the financial leadership of those organizations to conceptualize the ROI differently depending on the way their contracts are today and the way they're going, as obviously people are moving more and more to more outcome-based, more risk-based contracts in primary care across the country. Spencer, as I think about what you're describing, and these are really helpful examples, I'm trying to see what they all have in common, whether you're talking about the reimbursement layer and administering these new reimbursement models, whether it's at the clinical care level and collaborative care, whether it's at the operational level of coordinating the interactions with the patients. It seems that the ability to pass along data and have this data be meaningful, timely, secure is really important. So tell us how you're thinking about data in this model and where you're going to take it going forward. Both data and technology are a big part of our present and future. We think that their value in clinical medicine really comes when you can combine an exceptional workforce 
of great clinicians around an evidence-based model and then use information and data to help structure the clinical and business operations of the business. And we try to really do that carefully along the way, always measuring outcomes for patients over time and understanding what engages them, how to connect with them. It could be as simple as the right time to call them or as sophisticated as the type of psychotherapy intervention most likely to drive symptom improvement given their demographics and clinical condition. And then you really start with little data. The gold standard for depression screening is this basic tool called the Personal Health Questionnaire 9, often abbreviated as the PHQ-9, actually invented decades ago in order to measure outcomes of antidepressants, early drug trials. But it's been validated in thousands of studies to show that it's a really effective way to ask people a basic set of questions maybe before a primary care visit or as part of an annual wellness exam and really help uncover whether or not they might be experiencing depression and anxiety. There's another tool called the GAD-7 for anxiety. There's a Columbia scale for suicide risk. And all of those are really important both to screen patients on the front end to find out who might have these risk factors and then also to track outcomes over time. And so that's really, really critical for us to make sure we're getting to everybody. And then we're having the humility to recognize we need to measure improvements in their conditions. We're really augmenting that with then another layer is working with our more sophisticated health system and health plan partners to understand, okay, how do we replicate the research, which is when you improve depression care, anxiety care, other behavioral health conditions, that's a good in and of itself that should be measured and evaluated. But also what we've seen in research and what we hope to replicate more and more is showing that that reduces downstream medical spending. One problem we have in the way we architected our system years and years ago is we thought of behavioral health as something separate from the rest of medicine. What the research of collaborative care and more generally behavioral health integration has shown is that think about it intuitively, all of us. And so we're doing more and more to build that infrastructure with our partners to really value that in real time, most importantly, to make the biggest difference we can in patients' lives. And then also, obviously, to take advantage of where the contracting models are moving with so many providers, which is sort of both to quantify and then get credit for those outcomes as opposed to just how much volume of care you provided. That's great to hear about the leverage of data and analytics and insights to really drive those outcomes and figure out the appropriate interventions. Spencer, shifting gears a little bit, let's talk about equity and health equity. I know we're all acutely aware of the inequities and disparities in care that exist today. Can you share more about how Concert Health Services helps to reduce disparities in behavioral health care? Equity has been an important part of our mission and culture from the very beginning. I'd say it starts with ourselves as finding a way to make sure that we're supporting beneficiaries with Medicare and Medicaid. Of the 21,000 patients we've cared to to date, just about 60% of them have had a government health plan, whether it's Medicaid or Medicare. And we're really fortunate to prioritize that. I think a lot of innovation happening in behavioral health is in the consumer space or self-insured employers. That's great work and important work. And behavioral health is one of those rare places that even has access problems among people of means. And so I'm glad that people are doing that. But we've been focused on really making sure we solve the problem for the whole population and the problem uh, for the primary care physician, which often includes being able to support them across all their insurance types. I also think that embedding into the primary care setting is likely to pick up a group of patients more likely to be older or more likely to be underrepresented minorities, lower socioeconomic status that may have any of those characteristics make you more likely to be resistant to the concept of specialty behavioral health. And being able to embed it into the primary care physician that you trust and already work with makes it more likely we can both engage and effectively treat those populations. And then on our workforce side, it's really making sure that we're trying to build a company and a medical group that reflects the diversity of the patients that we're serving, trying our best to do that at every layer of the organization. 
Spencer, another major issue we're seeing out there related to these access issues is the burnout. And so I'm curious how you have created a work environment at Concert Health that helps behavioral health professionals avoid burnout. Igor, that's something we think a lot about, both among our partners, the primary care physicians and our workforce. I'll start with the partners. It was funny, just a year or so ago with a large medical group we started, we saw the first wave of referrals was actually the physicians referring themselves, either directly or like one of their colleagues referring them. And we, to be honest with you, we thought it was them testing the technology to make sure it worked, or we had been saying that we would do same day outreach and we thought they didn't believe us. And so they were testing whether or not they actually got a phone call. It turned out though, most of those were actually them addressing their own burnout, their own depression and saying, hey, I actually need help in order for me to care for patients. And so that's been incredibly gratifying for us to be able to support whether or not that's the physician, the medical assistant, the front desk, really making sure we start by helping those people. And you're absolutely right. I think there's always a risk for mental health professionals of they give so much, they support so much that they put themselves last and they put themselves at risk of doing that. And where we tried to do is one, create an environment that respects that. All of our clinicians get clinical supervision, even those that have terminal licensure. So it's not sort of a requirement for them. But that's one aspect of leaning in and investing in them as professionals so they can help their patients more support, continue to build their skills, but also check in with them, understand how they're doing, how they're supporting themselves in this work. We're seeing that even more now as it's feeling like many folks during the Omicron wave are needing to isolate more and to push that. Obviously, the benefits of the flexibility, our workforce is largely remote, doing things via phone and video. That can have a lot of advantages. It allows a workforce to fit their career into their life, right? To move more easily, to fit it around a child or a spouse's or a parent's schedule and other commitments they have in life. But you also need to make sure you're investing in community so that you don't feel isolated, right? And finding ways for us to do that, to come together, to be better professionals and get to know each other as a way to do that. I'm not sure that we've found a silver bullet on those issues, but it's something we bring up a lot and think a lot about. We see it in what we're really proud of in terms of retention rates and how many of our employees are referring friends or colleagues to come join, which is a great sign. But we know that there's always more work to do there. It's something we should stay focused on. Wow. As a former psych major, I can tell you, I find this topic fascinating. <laughs> and I'm, I'm grateful that we had this opportunity to really shed some light on the issues of behavioral health. It's exciting to hear about the innovation, the integration, the collaborative care, and the equitable access that Concert Health is leading and driving. Thanks, Spencer, for coming on the podcast. Spencer, it was fabulous to have you back with us. Thank you for having me. This was great. For more on these topics and other health industry insights driven by policy, innovation, and care delivery changes, please visit our website at pwc.com forward slash HRI. Until next time, this has been Next in Health. This podcast is brought to you by PwC, all rights reserved. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates and may sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.